Hey, and welcome back to the history of China. Remember to go check out the website, rate the show five stars, and give the show a follow. We're doing pretty well on that stat, actually, but it can always be better. And thank you to Matthew and Steve for the donation since last episode. And I will say, news about this so-called second project, if I may, will be shared at the end of this episode. But that's at the end. Because last time, we dove into the introduction of Buddhism with the stories and legend and path that happened in the early stages of that religion. And again, that is not the entire story, but it's a foundation for which we can build off of. Oh, and of course, we covered Emperor Ming and his administration's last few years. Now, we get Emperor Zhang of Han, and with him, like the four good emperors period of Rome, a golden age of successive positive rule is happening right before our eyes. So, without further ado, The History of China, Episode 53, The Golden Age of the Eastern Han. Does anyone know when the good times are happening? Or do they only realize once they are over? Okay, sure. You can tell my girlfriend got into my NBC Peacock account and I may or may not have been watching The Office. And I'm sure if I woke up in the year 75 AD, the Eastern Han would be very confused if I tried to explain what I just said. Well, they also probably wouldn't understand my mid, mid-tier level modern English skills. But anyway, the good times were there and they were happening. And you may be sitting back and wondering, okay, look, hey, whoa, wait a minute. The last few emperors have been amazing. I mean, Eric, you've told us that. Emperor Guangwu, all of them. So how is it now that Emperor Ming and now Emperor Zhang are somehow some sort of golden age? And that is because, as we know, the other earlier emperors were great. Yes, but they were trying to build a dynasty out of the near ashes of the Western Han. They had to build that foundation back. That's why they were amazing. So while they were amazing and incredible, what they were literally ruling over was not a quote-unquote golden age. It was not a civilizational peak. In another bad analogy, the Industrial Revolution Age was a time of great progress. A lot of leaders during that were fantastic, but no one's really sitting back and saying, well, it was some social, economic, and wealth peak for our civilization. It wasn't. It was a time of immense change and a lot of progress, sure. But was it the peak? Was it the golden age? No. It was the necessary part to get to a quote-unquote golden age. And that is the thing I will rip right from Dan Carlin. I know, I gotta stop doing that. But the idea is one that I tend to have my mind blown by. And he's not the only one. I've had teachers that have brought this up as well. But for the last 600 or so years, on aggregate, 
human civilization has simply gotten better and better. And I say on aggregate, okay? I don't need angry emails telling me about all the horrible backsteps and awful things that have happened in this, the last 600 years. But on aggregate, it is getting better. Children are not dying in childbirth as much. As a society, our life expectancy is going up. Things are getting better. Technology is more or less continuously advancing. But for most of history, it's not like that. Things could be lost forever. So to all of those that say, well, Eric, in the last 600 years, here's a laundry list of horrible things that have happened. Yes, you're right. But consider this. What I mean is that Rome falls, then there's a hundreds and hundreds of years time period called the Dark Ages. That's what I mean. So Emperor Zhang maybe was in the right place at the right time. Who knows? But the Chinese for decades and decades after this reign would look back at this exact moment and say, that, now that time under Emperor Ming and Emperor Zhang, that was awesome. Born in the year 56 as the son of Emperor Ming and subsequent grandson of Emperor Guangwu, the good times would keep on rolling. Now, I would love to talk about his early life and how he got here, but there is a reason we are just sort of hearing about him right now. Virtually nothing of his crown prince days came down to us today. We just don't really know a whole lot. But we do know a lot about his dad. And once he passes and Emperor Zhang comes onto the scene, the sort of metaphorical light is now shown onto him. So he's not a total mystery. He just, well, we don't know his childhood. And look, to reset your expectations, because I keep throwing around the words golden age, Emperor Zhang was not a wildly amazing emperor. He was not doing the near impossible to build an incredibly complex civilization out of the ashes of revolution. He was, one could argue, successfully just coasting on the momentum created by those that came before him. But I'll let you be the judge of that. Let's get into it. Early in his reign, Emperor Zhang proved to, which seems to happen a lot, to be a humble and honest emperor. Maybe it's me, but I feel like virtually every emperor's history starts with this, at first it was good recounting. Regardless of whether or not they ended up turning evil or ended up being average or ended up being the best of the best. Maybe that's the old Chinese historians. That's a little thing they do. Or maybe that's just an innately human trait. New starts, new beginnings. People tend to give you the benefit of the doubt. We get excited. And to myself, I will say, and pardon me for this horrible, again, analogy, Rex Grossman, Kyle Orton, Jay Cutler, Mitch Trubisky. Yeah, look, I get excited for every new Bears quarterback without little to no reason besides the fact that they're new. So, alas. Emperor Zhang was sort of a mama's boy. Not in a bad way, but he often sought his mom's advice on things. And she gave good advice, allegedly. She really did. She was not some maniacal empress dowager looking to control the empire. She was just a real, well, 
She was just a real politically savvy person. However, in 79, she died, leaving Emperor Zhang on his own. He himself was not, like, reliant on her, but she kept things in order within the court. And that's what really was important, and that's really what would be missed when she dies. Yes, her advice and the way she saw things was important, but it was this in the court that mattered the most in the long run. And yes, because times are good, welcome back to the court drama, because this is what happens when times are good. Long story short, the moment Emperor Zhang's mother died, it set off a backstabbing court drama almost immediately, with the new empress having ever-increasing tension with the other imperial consorts. In the histories, she gets sort of kind of dunked on. And this is also in part because this will snowball into an issue that lasts for a long time past Emperor Zhang, But let's be real for just a second and understand the excruciatingly patriarchal and sexist world that this was being written in. Was the Empress Do, D-O-U, that's her name, the best person? No, she wasn't. But I will cut her some slack here because the motives are oftentimes pretty understandable. Because the other consorts are, yes, they are extramarital affairs that the public have on the books. It's known. I wouldn't like that. No one really would. And I will say, keep that in the back of your head, though. This is going to snowball. But anyway, this rising rift between Empress Do and the consorts was something that would in time, again, snowball into much greater issues. But we will get to that later. Moreover, the groundwork for this aforementioned tension was sort of in part caused by the now-deceased Empress Dowager and part due to Empress Do not delivering sons. Let's get into this court drama like an ancient Chinese TMZ. Emperor Zhang's mother was playing high-level politics and was holding things down, as I said, and holding them together in her son's consort court. And this was what was hoped to happen for any Empress Dowager. So realizing that Empress Do was not delivering literally not delivering a son, Emperor Zhang's mother selected two sisters of the Song family as consorts for her son. Yeah, you did hear that right. Mom picks two sisters for her son to try and make more sons with. The ancient world never ceases to amaze. In 78, though, the older of the two Song consorts delivered a son. And in the next year, That boy, named Liu Qing, was made crown prince. Oh, it gets worse because Emperor Zhang's mom, who, remember, often had her son's ear, favored the consort Song. That is S-O-N-G, by the way. This wasn't a secret, and Empress Dou had to act. And she began moving her own chess pieces. And she planned to pull off a move done a few times before, even by Empress Dowager Ma, which was to adopt a legitimate son of the emperor. And because he is an actual son of the emperor, and technically now by adoption of the empress, 
he has a legitimate play to become crown prince. It is dodgy, and it's not a surefire plan, but she does not have her own trump card, i.e. an actual son. Have an actual son, this all goes away. Spoiler alert, she doesn't, and this is the best play she has. And as we know, by the end of 79, the powerful and influential Empress Dowager was gone. And now with that backstory, let's let the drama really begin, because it's about to, trust me. Empress Do's plan, again, was to adopt Liu Zhao, the son of another consort of the Liang clan. And she got her family, Empress Do, got her family in on it to help with the plan. It was time to make this adopted son into the crown prince. She had time, though, and she waited to start making any sizable moves until about 82. Because in 82 the older Song consort began to get sick. But in the three odd years in between the Empress Dowager's death in 82, Empress Do was not idle. No, the plan was still going on in the background. She was doing the classics, like bribing eunuchs for dirt on the Song sisters and whatnot. And in 82, again, the older Song sister was sick, and medicine is not what it is today, and that's self-explanatory. I'm not talking down to anybody. And the increasingly ailing eldest Song sister began to request cascuda. Cascuda? I'm not a botanist. Long story short, it's like a vine that acts as a plant-to-plant parasite, kind of like a kudzu, but without the leaves? Anyway, it's a medicine, herbal medicine. Though it's also used for another purpose, witchcraft, because of course it is. Of course, it has to be, obviously. But this is where you now see what's probably going to happen, don't you? Empress Do, having bribed her way deep into the court and attaching herself like, well, a cuscutta plant, she intercepted the shipment, brought it to the emperor, and leveled the accusation that the sister who was the most favored consort and mother of the crown prince, was indeed doing witchcraft. She was obviously not. She was sick. The emperor, though, like most emperors recently, did not take the accusations of witchcraft with any initial doubt, booted the crown prince from the palace, and began an aggressive investigation. Obviously, the investigation was going to only find what Empress Do wanted it to find. Because Emperor Zhang already had the belief that she was guilty, more or less, and Empress Do made sure that the right trusted eunuchs and officials were all on the same page. The Song sisters realized that they had gotten thoroughly and quickly outmaneuvered. And without the Empress Dowager there, the one that favored them, to guide her son to their defense... They took the only real path forward and drank poison, killing themselves. The plan, simple and devious, worked. Because Liu Zhao, the adopted son, was made crown prince and Liu Qing was out. And I will put on to the brighter side of this. The son of the Song sister, who was the crown prince, now no longer crown prince, was not killed 
and he actually spent a lot of time from here on out hanging out with the new crown prince, Crown Prince Liu Jiao. Oh, but it's not over yet. Oh, no, 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 no. Empress Doe was not done. Not quite yet. And I'll give you a hint. Her adopted son was adopted. And his birth mother's clan, who had really no role in this besides giving up their son, looked around and probably said, wait a minute, wait a minute. All of a sudden, there's an interesting play for us. Now, they, quote-unquote, did not dare to openly celebrate, but were secretly happy, end quote, that their lost son was now the crown prince. Someone, whether because it was true or just suspicion, the Doe clan was convinced the Liangs, the original family of this kid, were now plotting to reclaim their lost son and crown prince to better themselves. Oh, the plot thickens. Because this is not just about Empress Doe acting alone, getting more power for herself. As we know by now with a lot of these kind of stories, this is a family affair. And everyone in the clan stands to gain. I mean, if your family is the family of the emperor or the soon-to-be emperor, that's huge. And for her family, Empress Doe began stirring the pot. False allegations against her adopted son's mother and sister, both consorts, because I guess Emperor Zhang had a thing for sisters, or more realistically, clans would just put as many daughters into the consort court to boost the chances of their family being favored, which, yes, is actually what happened in most cases. Regardless, they lobbed these allegations against the sisters. Then, the Greater Doe clan lobbed a plethora of accusations against the Liang's clan patriarch, who was the biological grandfather to the new crown prince. I know, it's a little confusing. But these accusations worked, and he died in prison. Then, with immense sadness, the Liang consorts allegedly died of sadness and fear. Make of that what you want. That's what the history says. The Doe clan were now in a great position, obviously. And they were about to get into an even better position. As sort of a structural note, the Doe clan represents, obviously, Emperor Doe's side of the family. But it was the Ma clan, M-A, that represented the late Empress Dowager and thus Emperor Zhang's side. Yeah, there's a paternal and maternal side. But this gain in power allegedly didn't take any plotting from the Doe's, as in 83, it is recorded that the emperor had time and time again seen the Ma clan in all the positions of power he and his mother and father put them in were breaking the law and were shamelessly corrupt. This is where the snowball effect I mentioned really gets going. The Ma clan which included the emperor's literal uncles, lost all favor and even got sent home. They did this to themselves. And in their place, the now powerful and close to his ear and influential Doe clan, specifically the empress's brothers, took the now kicked out uncle's place. 
this may sound trivial, and it kind of does, but this marks a change of precedent that would slowly eat away at the Eastern Han Dynasty. This new precedent being that the most favored and powerful and influential consort clan was now that of the Empress, not the Empress Dowager, which had been the case for the entire Han Dynasty. This will become a running theme, but that is enough for the timeline now on this, because in this story of this drama with the court, we passed over something extremely important. No, it was not actually that obvious, because I barely even gave a hint. But this goes to show that ancient China is just a tremendous historical trove of events and people, with all these different things happening at once, and you might be asking yourself, what in the world do you mean? Okay, listen to me. Hear me out. Remember when I said, during the investigation into the Song Sisters, that the emperor interviewed and questioned some eunuchs? Mm-hmm. One of those eunuchs was Tsai Lun. C-A-I-L-U-N. Remember that name, because he is about to be a major player for not just this reign, but many more to come. And that's also foreboding that he's going to be there for many more reigns. Oh, and while I have to come back to this in the next few episodes, let me read a quote from the Book of Han that really explains what I mean by tremendous events. The whole Han Shu states, quote, In ancient times, writings and inscriptions were generally made on tablets of bamboo or on pieces of silk. But silk being costly and bamboo heavy, they were not convenient to use. Tsai Lun then initiated the idea of making paper from the bark of trees, hemp, old rags, and fishing nets. He submitted the process to the emperor in the first year of Yuan Xing, which is 105, and received praise for his ability. From this time, paper has been in use everywhere and is universally called the quote-unquote paper of Lord Tsai, end quote. Yes, Tsai Lun, who appeared in this ancient, long-forgotten court drama, rather innocuously, actually, is often credited with inventing paper. Yes, paper. If you are new to this show, you should go back to episode one, get some context, but if not, regardless... Welcome to the wild and amazing and tremendous world of ancient China. Because, of course, one of the eunuchs here invented one of the most important things really in all history. And that brings us to a good transition back to policy. It might sound that with all this drama, that Emperor Zhang was sort of aloof to what was happening around him. But that's not really true. His job was not to monitor his consorts. I mean, it kind of is, but... He has other things that are more important, like, I don't know, the military. And he was someone who is credited with routinely bringing on the best officials and heeding advice, which, ah, man, you would think that leaders today would just do this because we have seen time and time again, golden eras and good times are brought on by emperors who bring on the best officials, who are good at their job and heed advice. Yeah, it seems pretty simple. For example... He was leaning towards stopping the Shi Yu campaign that his father had started, which we went over last episode. 
Many officials had helped him come to this conclusion, by the way. This wasn't just him deciding that I'm done with the GU campaign, let me be my own man. No. But one of his generals stood up and defended the whole operation, feverishly imploring the emperor to see the strategic importance of this operation. Which, yes, I concur. He's right. The emperor, who had essentially already made up his mind, ended up changing his mind and made this general head of the whole Shi Yu campaign. He heeds advice, he listens to reason, and he puts the people that are most likely to be the most successful in the best positions to be successful. It's good for him, it's good for the dynasty, and oh man, you would think that every emperor after this would follow this playbook. They don't. Emperor Zhang was also, with his good understanding of hiring the best people, was very open-minded. And this is a point we haven't really gotten to a whole lot with a lot of emperors. Some may be open-minded to new religions or new ideas, but take this story. In a tale as old as time, or at least a tale as old as 2,000 years old, two university students got in trouble for writing and saying politically extreme things. Yeah, it, this, is just, this happens all the time. This is, seems to be a normal thing for university. In this case, though, these two students criticized Emperor Wu, who was an ancestor of Emperor Zhang. And thus, therefore, they were critiquing his ancestor. The students were now critiquing the current emperor. That's sort of how this thing works. But one of the students wrote a letter in his own defense. And in a generally unprecedented move, Emperor Zhang accepted the letter, read it, and must have said something along the lines of, all right, he either has some good points or something, because Emperor Zhang made this student an official in his government. Dang. I mean, that's really open-minded. Criticizing the emperor could get you killed as recently as today in some places. So, yeah. But another precedent was about to be changed in the Han under his reign. And again, like changing which side of the family or which empress or empress dowager and their clan gets to lead the consort court, well, this one would not work out in the long run for the Han dynasty at all. This one actually probably more so. Because in 86, the people of the Qiang rebelled for the first time. And I say first time, because while Emperor Zhang emphatically suppressed this rebellion, it was no issue to him, this would not be the last time the Qiang would rebel. It was the last time they did it under Emperor Zhang, sure, but the Qiang people would, for decades and decades after, rebel, and would do so at such a rate and intensity that in time, they would be a major reason the Eastern Han Dynasty collapses. Spoiler, I know, but eventually, the Eastern Han does collapse. Two years later, in 88, just like that, the Golden Age ended. Because Emperor Zhang died at the young age of just 32. And his crown prince, yes, crown prince Zhao, of his very politically and sort of backstabbing Empress became Emperor He, H-E. Here's my take on this whole thing, though. 
Emperor Zhang, in my retrospect, was like a market bubble, sort of. And what I mean by that is that the problems were already there. He just happened to exist in a good time before the market crashed. He did not cause the times to stop being good, but he also probably did not himself make it any better. Regardless, the bubble's about to pop, and things are about to really heat up. And like after the death of Marcus Aurelius, it is more or less a long, slow decline to the bitter end from here. But again, that decline is long and slow. Now, to my news. I am in the official research phase of a new podcast to run concurrently to this one. The subject matter is not really a secret. It is the U.S. Civil War. It is an extremely touchy and complex subject, and I will not be doing it in this format. Instead, I'm aiming for three to five extremely long parts to the story released slowly, so each part will be hopefully several hours long. We'll see, though. But don't worry, I'm not going anywhere with the history of China yet. So, rate the show five stars, check out the website, and donate if you feel so inclined. I'm not going to stop you. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you all next time on the history of China. Thank you.